How do you advise your patients who travel internationally for work or play? When they travel to some tropical beach for vacation, they definitely do not want to bring back memories of a date with Plasmodium falciparum. You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Today we are discussing travel medicine. In this show, we will be focusing on malaria prevention. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Dr. Phyllis Kozarski. Dr. Kozarski, an expert consultant in the Division of Global Migration and Quarantine at the CDC, is also one of the editors of the Medical Guide for Travel Medicine, Yellow Book. Welcome, Dr. Kozarski. Thank you very much. So, Give us a scope of the problem. How many symptomatic infections are there a year around the world for malaria? I'm not sure about symptomatic, but I can tell you that malaria is one of the most common and serious infectious diseases in the world, affecting about 300 million people. And roughly about a million people die every year from malaria. I've actually read an estimate that asymptomatic infections can number upwards of a billion a year. But again, not all those billion people are symptomatic, but I think it serves to underscore the point that malaria is quite a significant problem around the world. Malaria is not uh, common in our listening area, which actually encompasses the entire United States. Can you review for our clinicians uh, some of the symptoms of malaria? Sure. Symptoms are flu-like, and it's high fever, chills, So you can get nausea, vomiting, you can have back pain, myalgias, arthralgias, you can get diarrhea as well, and respiratory symptoms, but primarily fever and chills. And sometimes these fevers can be uh, quite high and spectacular. Absolutely. Now, one of the interests of, in fact, the chief purpose of this discussion is to really review the general principles of malaria protection. Now, malaria protection doesn't just rely on antimicrobial agents, but certainly that's a big subject, and that's the area that I'd like to review first. Can you give us some general oversight of uh, preventing malaria with medication? Back in the 1940s, the drug chloroquine became available for both the prevention and treatment of malaria, and it was wonderful and miraculous. Gradually with time resistance developed to that drug. So we divide the world now essentially into those areas of the world where malaria is sensitive to chloroquine and those areas that are resistant to chloroquine. Most areas have chloroquine resistance now, except for areas in Central America that have malaria, Mexico, Haiti, and parts of the Mideast. For the most part, however, where there is malaria, it is chloroquine resistant. Let's talk about the drugs that are used where chloroquine resistance is greatest. Uh, What options are available? Okay, there are several options that are available. None of them is perfect, and no malaria medication, people should know, is 100%. So even though one takes malaria pills, a high fever and chills in somebody who has returned from a malarious area is always a medical emergency. But getting back to the medications, the first one that's available for chloroquine-resistant areas is interesting in that it's a tetracycline antibiotic, and that is doxycycline. 
and doxycycline, because it has a short half-life, needs to be taken every day. So people going into a malarious area, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, would start the medication just a few days before they go and take 100 milligrams a day, the two days, for example, before they go, once a day while they're in country, but then once a day for four weeks after you leave the country. So that's quite a long time if somebody's going on a two-week safari to have to take a medication. Side effects we get concerned about with the tetracyclines is sun sensitivity, certainly going to the tropics, that's no fun. Sometimes esophagitis or gastrointestinal problems. And women tend to get vaginal yeast infections because of candida overgrowth. The second drug that is also extremely effective for chloroquine-resistant areas is mefloquine or larium. Mefloquine is a weekly drug. It's begun one to two weeks prior to going into the malarious area. It's taken once a week in the malarious area and then once a week for four weeks after leaving the malarious area. Again, very effective. Unfortunately, it does have some neuropsychiatric adverse events and some of which have been very, very serious. In people who have a history of neuropsychiatric problems, such as anxiety or depression or psychosis, we do not give this drug. As a matter of fact, we're so nervous about giving this drug because there are a fair number of legal actions regarding it that we screen people prior to giving them a prescription for mefloquine in the sense we ask them if they have any history of anxiety, if they are on an antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication, and in that case, we don't give it. The third drug, which is the newest one, is a combination of two drugs, a combination of atovaquone and proguanol, and the drug's name is malarone. There are advantages to it, and that is it's easier to take rather than doxycycline or mefloquine. It is daily. One starts it usually about two days before going into the malarious area, daily again while in the malarious area, and daily after travel, but one only has to take it for seven days instead of for a whole month after travel. It is more expensive, and especially if one... If you are going to be away a long time and have to take the drug for a while, it does get to be more expensive, but it doesn't tend to have these other serious adverse events that mefloquine has in neuropsychiatric problems, and it doesn't have as many GI problems or other issues as doxycycline does. So if you've got a fairly good-sized wallet, it is the drug of choice for many people. If you have just joined us, you are listening to Reach MD. XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Phyllis Kozarski, a nationally recognized expert on travel medicine and one of the editors of Yellow Book. This segment has been focusing on malaria prevention. Well, you touched on a subject that I think is worth emphasizing, though. I think I remember going to Costa Rica myself. And I was going to the coast, so I took uh, malaria prophylaxis. I probably didn't need it, but it made me feel better because I was so afraid of malaria. And, of course, I think I stopped taking the drug shortly after I returned. So my question to you is, how important is it to continue prophylaxis after the return home? Compliance is one of the most serious issues that we have 
with malaria medication. When people feel good, it's hard to take a medication. And when you've come back from a malarious area and you feel good, the tendency is to stop the drug. It is, if one wants to prevent malaria, one needs to continue to take the drug. The malaria parasite's life cycle within the body is such that you need to continue to take the drug in order for it to be effective. You talk about Costa Rica. It's a very, very popular destination now. And there is some malaria there, certainly in rural areas, and there is some on the coast too. But the intensity of it is is much less so than in some other parts of the world. I think the important point is that when I came back, I felt well, and I didn't see any mosquitoes in Chicago, so uh, it was winter, so I figured I was okay. I knew that wasn't, I knew on some level that wasn't correct, but, you know, uh, I can certainly speak to noncompliance. Now, another interesting thing about malaria prevention are uh, non-antimicrobial methods, and that, of course, is mosquito netting and then, of course, mosquito repellents. What can you tell us about these alternative methods or additional methods to reduce your risk for malaria? Good point, and they are additional methods, and their personal protection measures are very, very important because, as mentioned before, no malaria drug is 100%. And certainly in studies done in children in sub-Saharan Africa who don't have the availability of pills, it has been shown that sleeping under bed nets is extremely protective. So, number one... If people are going to be very adventuresome and not sleeping in air-conditioned screened quarters, they need to bring a bed net if they're going to be camping or sleeping outside or in, in barracks or quarters where they don't have the availability of the other. Bed nets treated with permethrin, which is an insecticide, are extremely effective. But for most of us who travel and stay in decent, at least, hotels with air conditioning or screens, uh, we do still need to use insect repellents. The most effective ones on the market still contain the chemical DEET. Although we have realized over time that one doesn't need those 99 and 100% DEET formulations in order to protect you. fact, we recommend using between 25 and 50 percent DEET and then following the package or the can or whatever it says in terms of reapplication because some of them are the long-term eight-hour protection and some of them have only the three or four-hour protection. Usually, the higher the percentage, the longer it protects. But in order to prevent people from having skin irritation our rashes, we usually don't recommend the higher than 50% DEET anymore. This is something that people get very, very concerned about are insect repellents and the safety of insect repellents. And I think it's very, very important to say that that repellents with DEET have been used by the military since the mid-1950s. And there have been just a handful of adverse events related to these products. And it's primarily... In children, where the products have been used inappropriately, like bathing the children in deep or reapplying and putting it on their face and their mouth and hands and things like that. So basically, we feel that DEET is a, is a safe compound to use when it's used the way it should be, and it can be used in children as well. What about pregnant or nursing mothers? It certainly can be used also, but not in areas around, not on the breasts where there's nursing. 
and one needs to make sure that the the child's hands and mouth are are clear of anything that might contain DEET. Should the DEET be put directly on the skin, or is it acceptable to put it on just exposed skin areas and then the outer clothing? That's what most people do. Put it on exposed skin and then use that or permethrin on clothing. You can actually purchase permethrin impregnated clothing or impregnate your own clothing if you're going to be really adventuresome and living outdoors. People do that. I want to thank Dr. Phyllis Kozarski, a nationally recognized expert on travel medicine and editor of Yellow Book, who's been our guest. We have been discussing malaria prevention. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Be safe. Be informed. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.